Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in World Affairs, and this is your host, Christian Peterson. And today I have the good fortune of speaking with Lincoln Mitchell about his new book, The Democracy Promotion Paradox, which is put out by Brookings Institution Press. Lincoln, welcome to the show. Thanks, Christian. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you on the line. And before we get going, I was wondering if you could tell the listeners a little bit about your background. Sure. Um. I have a kind of a hybrid background where I spent half of my career working in academia. I have a uh, you know PhD in political science, and I've been a professor of international affairs for much of the last uh, ten years at Columbia University, as well as other other universities along the way, both here in, in the U.S. and also overseas. But I've also and I've written academic books and articles on various topics. But I've also worked in democracy promotion for close to fifteen years now in different capacities. I was the chief of party for the National Democratic Institute in Georgia from 2002 to 2004, which was a very, uh, very important time for Georgia. And I've been involved both implementing, kind of strategizing, and also evaluating policies more or less on a short-term basis since then, you know, through the present. So, uh, and, and in more or less every corner of the world, I've probably worked more in the former Soviet Union than other regions, but I've worked in the Caribbean, I've worked in, in various parts of Africa, in, in Europe and in Asia. So I have a kind of global approach, and that's the approach that I, that I tried to do in this book. This is not a regional-specific book. Sure, and that, that makes sense. Uh, why did you write this book? Well, I wrote what? this book for a couple reasons. And, you know, when I first started doing democracy promotion work, it was in the, around the year 2000, which, as, as we know, was the end of the Clinton administration. And I was living in, I still live in New York City, and I'd be, you know, I'd be going to the airport to, let's say, go to the Balkans for a democracy promotion project, and I would have, you know, a bag and I would be clearly going to the airport. I'd be in the elevator or in, you know, seated on the first leg of the flight to Western Europe. And somebody would say, hey, what are you doing? And I, where are you going? What are you doing? And I would explain. And I would, when I was finished, they would say, wow, that's fascinating. I didn't realize the United States did something, did things like that. By about 2005, the same question would come up. I'd answer it the same way. And tell them I was going to do a democracy promotion project in, you know, some country somewhere. And the answer would be like in Iraq. And and by about 2007, it would be the response after I told what I was doing would be uh, maybe we should try some of that here, here being uh, the United States. And by 2010, I would just say I'm going to the airport. And that was kind of the end of the conversation. <laughs> so the evolving views of democracy, a promotion work has always been on my mind. And part of the reason this is so interesting to me is that. These are these were people. I mean, I live on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. These are people who would identify themselves as kind of liberal Democrats. Uh, no fans of George W. Bush, as you gathered from that from that introduction. But they would say this as if the idea that going to Azerbaijan to help people maybe get a little more individual freedom or a little more say in who was running their country was somehow some right wing plot, right? And mm-hmm. and it occurred to me there's a real misunderstanding here. A lot of the people working in democracy promotion, both the Americans, the Europeans but also the people in their countries 
are people who really believe in freedom and democracy and a lot of the progressive values, right? These are people who are working hard so that, you know, women are treated like uh, first-class citizens equally to men. That's not a right-wing policy. I think that's a policy that Americans, at least across the political spectrum, but certainly on the left, would support. Or they're working with groups that maybe want gay people not to be beaten up all the time. Well, that's something that, you know, the Upper West Side of Manhattan, we would support that opinion. But so I was struck by how this was misunderstood and, and the paradox of being both misunderstood on the left and on the right. So, and then I, I, as I began to do the work more and more over the years, the conversations I would have in the field, both you know, moments of, of working with people it, who would say things to me that would really make me acutely aware of some of the challenges that we're not talking about involved with democracy promotion, but also the informal conversations with colleagues where it was clear to me that, for example, had, you know, we are, when, when you are working on democracy promotion projects in Armenia or Kyrgyzstan or something, ultimately you're there because we won the Cold War. And if you don't accept that and accept the military component of that, you're misleading yourself. Um, hmm. I was, uh, so, so maybe I'll, I'll so, so these kind of paradoxes and questions got me to write a book and my hope in the book, and I hope that people when they read it come to the same conclusion is that this is, you know, is that my own feelings towards democracy promotion are, are complicated. I do believe in the mission. I believe that, that we can, and in some cases should help countries become more democratic, but I also believe that it's extremely difficult, that we're not going it about the, in the best way, and we're often going about it in a paradoxical or even illogical way. Yeah, that's, that's it, those are very important points, and I wonder how you want to go about addressing them. Do you think it would be best to go right into the paradoxes that you see or bring those paradoxes out by looking at the general history of U.S. democracy promotion and how it has evolved from after World War II to the Cold War into today. Well, maybe we could talk. I mean, maybe we could go right to the paradoxes. Whichever is, is easier for you is, is fine with me. I mean, I, that, that's go right to the paradoxes. That's good. Okay. Um, in my view, and and the book is more or less organized in this way. I like to think of the paradoxes in three kind of categories. Uh. And the first is paradoxes of the theory of democracy promotion. The second is paradoxes of the implementation of democracy promotion. And the third is the paradoxes of the American politics, the domestic American politics and political discourse side of democracy promotion. So perhaps we can start with the first of those, which is the theory of democracy promotion. The paradox is there. And one thing that strikes me and struck me from the beginning is that over the, the years and really the decades, uh, democracy promotion has been something that is both central to American foreign policy. We speak about our role in making the world democratic very centrally. We discuss it often in the context of things like the Cold War, which was, you know, a decades long global conflict, but also World War II um, and also later, you know, Iraq and, and things like that. On the other hand, we also see it as something that is, that is peripheral to American, to the rest of American foreign policy. Making a country democratic, helping a country become more democratic is never as front and center as and today it would be combating uh, jihadist terror. But in other days, it would be combating communism or pushing back against communism or limiting communism or winning World War Two or securing the energy needs that we have or making it possible for American business to do trade overseas. So it is both central to but also peripheral to. And that's that's a paradox. The budget, the amount of money that goes into democracy promotion even as part of the foreign policy budget, which is not a big part of our federal budget, is tiny, right? But if we define American uh, democracy promotion as simply by the money that goes into programs, we're really missing the point. Um, 
so that's that's kind of one one paradox. The other paradox, which for me, which for me is very important, is that we we view democracy promotion and it is discussed in, in the in the kind of political discourse as both imperialist, right? This is the new imperialism of the United States. We are going into other countries, telling them how to organize their government so that we can get people who we like in power, right? We see this in a lot of the kind of left critique of the color revolutions. It was an effort to get Saakashvili in Georgia or uh, President Yushchenko in Ukraine into power because that's what America wanted. On the other hand, we also hear this discourse that says it is impossible. Democracy promotion is impossible. You can't make another country democratic. You can't, you know, at one point in the book, I do a Google search of democracy and barrel of a gun or something like that. And I think a whole spate of articles and books of how it's impossible to make a democracy, to bring democracy through military force. Well, those two things might both individually be true, but they can't both be true. It can't both be imperialist and be impossible, because if it's imperialist and not possible, it wouldn't matter that it's imperialist. Um, and I also felt that this notion about uh, the role of the military is something that we don't really discuss honestly, because it is a very appealing notion to the liberal instincts in many of us that you can't just go into a country, overthrow the government, and make them democratic. We all would like to believe that, and that resonates. However, empirically, it's not so clear. And the example that I give, that I don't give in the book, but I give in my teaching, I used to teach a course in democracy promotion at Columbia uh, University. And at the last, you know, the last section of the class, the class, I would end by saying, you know, and as we know, you can't bring democracy to a country through military force. And everybody would start writing that down in their notebooks. And then I would say, and that's why Germany and Japan are still fascist countries. And they would get kind of halfway through and realize, wait, there's something wrong there. So that's also a paradox, and that's the complex relationship between democracy promotion and the military. Um, the other uh, paradox about the theory of democracy promotion is that the work of democracy promotion shows, in my view, both the ugly side of, of American culture and foreign policy. We can remake the world in our image, what we know what's best for every country, but also the best and most idealistic side of American foreign policy. Hey. We believe democracy is the best system, and we believe everybody should, should enjoy it, whether they're Muslim, whether they're, regardless of the pigment of their skin, regardless of, the, uh, of what religion they are, regardless of their history. And that's a very idealistic view. Now, some might say I'm being idealistic to say it that way, but, but when the rubber meets the road in the field, this is what many people believe. So it is both the worst and best of the American foreign policy and even the American character. Um, so, so perhaps I'll move on to paradoxes of implementation. Um, okay, that sounds good. And, and there are several here that are, that are related, but let me just start with this. The first is that democracy promotion, the policies, the programs around democracy promotion, all tend to be technical in nature. We're going to help a parliament in a foreign – and they all tend to be similar in nature. We're going to help a parliament in a foreign country organize public hearings better craft the budget better, do constituency relations better. We're going to help a political party in a foreign country become more familiar with foreign, uh, with camp political campaign techniques. Or we're going to help a civil society organization become better at overseeing the work of their government, being a better watchdog. Right? Those are kind of, but those are technical solutions. The problem, the paradox, is that the absence of democracy is a political problem. Vietnam is not a democracy, is not a, is not, is not non-democratic today 
because the government there doesn't know how to hold committee hearings. It's non-democratic because the government is powerful and doesn't want to be democratic. And you can say that about not picking on Vietnam, but about a lot of countries. So solutions only go so far, and that's not very far, to solve political problems. But political problems are much more controversial, create much more problems between the relation between the U at the bilateral relationship between our government and the country in question. And this leads me to the second paradox of implementation, which is that our democracy promotion programmatic policy is often frequently based on working with non-democratic countries to bring about democratic change, non-democratic governments, I should say. Not in every country, of course. There are some countries where we really don't work with the government, but that's, there's really few of those. And the reason for this is that, again, it jeopardizes our bilateral relationship with that government if we're doing democracy work and not working with the government. Because then it indicates that we're really concerned about the government, and the government might be afraid that we're trying to overthrow it. And in some cases, they're, they're not wrong about that. Um, but if we're not willing to have that relationship with a country, we have to coordinate this effort. But if you coordinate your democracy promotion effort, and coordinate some might push back against that word, but you certainly have to let them know about it. If you do that with a government that's, non, that's non-democratic, it's going to be very, very hard to have effective democracy promotion policies and programs. Mm-hmm. Um, another issue here is that, you know, U.S. democracy promotion is funded almost entirely by the United States government. There is some private foundations, but with the exception of the Open Society Institute, it's very, very small amounts of money. And, you know, their money comes from a lot of different sources. Some comes from the National Endowment for Democracy. Comes from, some comes from the United States Agency for International Development. Some come... Some of the money comes from specific grants that an embassy might be able to make or that the Justice Department of the United States has for an overseas program. But it originates with the American taxpayer or borrowing from China. And it is meted out by the United States government that has to run that uh, that budget by Congress. That's how our budget process budgeting process works. So if the United States Congress is voting to give taxpayer money to a project in a country, that is a U.S. government action. However, the structures that we create to do that government, to do that projects, those projects are non-governmental. We have NGOs, American NGOs doing it. And the reason for that is, and there's a lot of reasons, some of them are very good, but one of the impacts of that is that we are telling ourselves one story. This isn't the United States government going in. This is the National Democratic Institute, which is an NDO, which is an NGO with an independent board or the International Republican Institute or Freedom House. But for the people in the country, that's a distinction without a difference. They're saying, hey, we know where this money's coming from. We know you're coordinating with the embassy. It's the government. So that's also a paradox. The last paradox of implementation, and to me this is a critical one, and I'm going to, if I may, give a couple of examples that I give in the book, uh, is, Absolutely. That, is that we talk about a democracy promotion and democracy, but we often don't really understand it. We don't understand the concept of democracy. Now, as you know, There are good, you know, you can go to most political science departments in the United States and take a graduate seminar on what democracy is. And, you know, I'm not teaching that seminar in this in this uh, Skype call right now, but there's a lot to it. And there's a lot of questions about what democracy looks like. And USAID has its own definition of democracy. But what strikes me is so many people working in the field at relatively high levels haven't thought this through. So one example I, I, I always struck me is I was discussing some situation in a foreign country on the eve of a big election, as the media would, would say, 
where a lot of different factions competing for influence in the government and the parliament and what that might look like. And I said to the person I was discussing this with, who was a senior official at USAID in that country, very senior, I said, well, you know, it's just like Fed 10. And this person was silent on the other end of the phone. <laughs> and I said, okay, I'm a political scientist. I'm talking short. And I said, I said, you know, Federalist Paper 10. Another more silence. And I said, you know, James Madison. And she vaguely knew who that was, but didn't know what Federalist Paper 10 was. And rather than be an arrogant, I just kind of talked her through it. But, but not knowing what Federalist Paper 10 is, and the 10th, you know, that's the central kind of one of the one of the intellectual foundations of the United States Constitution and of yeah. and of principles like separations of power and competition of for ideas and in the political marketplace that that absolutely undergird our understanding of democracy. So how can you really talk about that if you're not familiar with those principles? But again, not everyone has the opportunity to read as much as they should about democracy. So I'll give another example. And this example, there's a section in the book where I talk about how we kind of lump democracy in as a generic all things that are good, you know, in, in the world or in politics. And one of those things is unity. But unity is not the purpose. Democ Demo if everyone was, if we had unity, we wouldn't need democracy. And in the purpose of democracy and the value of democracy is not bringing about unity. It's addressing a diversity of opinions and goals and policies through legal nonviolent means so that we can argue it out at an election or in a legislature or in a committee in a legislature rather than, you know, on the streets with guns. That's the value of one of the values of democracy. And it's an important value of democracy. So on the eve of another major election, I was having a conversation with a representative uh, from the U.S. Embassy who said to me, well, my fear is that after the election, there's going to be a whole lot of parties in parliament with a whole lot of different opinions. Well, I, I said, I said to this person, I said, well, you know, there is a word for that. And the word for that is democracy. But these, I mean, these are, I don't bring these up as straw men. I bring these up as illustrative examples of, of what's encountered. And, and I could flesh out more, but perhaps I'll leave it at there for the moment. Yeah, that, that was uh, very interesting parts of your book. I couldn't agree more. I was I was shocked with the example of Federalist Ten. Uh, even in my one hundred level survey classes here, I teach at Ferris State. That's we go over the Constitution. Those are the first two things we do is go over Federalist Ten and Federalist Fifty One. They're like, in my mind, the bread and butter of understanding our system of government. Yeah, I mean, I don't, so that, I don't know if you have a minor in political science and not read Federalist Paper Ten, but even yeah. if you majored in, you know, anthropology, right? And got interested in this in a different way, it wouldn't kill you to read it, you know. No, it's it's it certainly wouldn't. So and go ahead. No, go ahead. Well, I was just I was going to ask you um, one of one of the points you make. I think it gets to this narrowness of vision about about Americans seeing that the U.S. system, excuse me, is pretty much the standard to go by, and don't really question the assumptions. And I was wondering if you could say a bit more about. What, why you think or the, your experience in the field of people trying to filter everything through the American ideal of having a two-party system or having partisan election judges, uh, what your experience is with, with people just kind of seeing things as everyone should be like the United States? Well, perhaps I can answer that twofold, uh, two different directions. One, in fairness, much of the democracy promotion community understands this problem, and they understand 
that our American democracy is not normal, even by the standards of democracy. So you will see a lot of people from other other democratic countries involved in this. Now, this book is about U.S. democracy promotion. The reason is that it's the country that I know best, and it's the policy that I know best, and I've studied the most. There are books about European democracy promotion. In my view, American democracy promotion is more important because there's more money behind it, more activity behind it, and it's got a longer history. Um, And it sets the tone for a lot of, of democracy promotion around the world. But even our own programs, we at time, I mean, there is not uncommon at all to go to a country and meet the representative of a U.S. democracy promotion organization who might be Dutch or French or, you know, from, say, the former Yugoslavia, from Croatia or somewhere like that. However, and there is a notion, you know, many of the countries where I mean, very few countries have two houses of Congress where everyone is elected by single mandate districts, right? That's almost unheard of in the world, except for the United States or this extreme focus on uh, constituency service as what elected officials do in the United States. So there is an awareness that, you know, there are other models. The problem is that for many people who are in the field who are Americans, they're not aware of how deeply they've internalized the American process. So, I mean, I remember once looking at a USAID spreadsheet where the goal for a project was to have our, it was for a congressional election, a parliamentary election that was approaching. And the goal was we want people, members, you know, people, candidates running for office to discuss local political issues, right? So, you know, if you're in this village, maybe the issue should be whether we have a new school or not, right? But I said in the meeting, I said, you know, this is a national election. This is a party list election. Why in a party list election would you ever discuss local issues, Right. Mm-hmm. That's politically that. I mean, as I used to be, I used to run political campaigns. That's a bad strategy. But also, we are so focused on that that we don't understand that that's not the right approach for most places. Many of our program is focused on constituency service because for Americans, this is so central to how parliament should work. But it's not how parliaments work in other places. And there are some real problems with that. So that's the first piece of the answer. The second piece of the answer, and this is a little bit of one of the internal uh, American paradoxes, is that, you know, we live in an age where, you know, um, and I don't put this in the book because I had to, you know, stop writing the book a while ago, but, but some of this, you know, where an African-American person is shot for, you know, being black in the wrong time and place in the United States, and people see it all over the world within six hours or something, right? Mm-hmm. Where... Donald Trump makes a statement ignorant, it, demonstrating a, an, a, a just unimaginable level of ignorance about how the world works, and it is YouTubed and tweeted all over the world in a matter of minutes. And in that environment, the flaws of our demo- democratic system are obvious for the world, including not just the kind of the foibles of a, of a, of a Donald Trump or the terrible instance when an innocent person is shot and killed by police because he's black or something, but also questions of, you know, this, we used to have this debate every few years about, should we give up on our debt? You know, um, should we keep the government running or, or just not service our debt? Right. Well, that's not an example to, to set for the rest of the world. Right. Including for example, the 2000 elections, which was understood by many people in many countries to be stolen, uh, to have been stolen by George W. Bush including the war in Iraq and then the enormous contracts going to a company that happened to be um, former, you know, former, the former CEO happened to be the vice president of the United States. So 
the problems of American democracy, both the structural problems and the kind of, you know, high, very visible examples are much harder to conceal. And this also makes the democracy promotion project much more difficult. Right. And it creates a bit of a paradox there as well. Yeah, and one of, one of the central contentions of the book, it talks about, uh, or chapter seven anyways, deals with this idea of democracy promotion and American power and how, uh, at the end of the day, a lot of democracy promotion really, it brings up all sorts of issues of where, um, how America exercises power abroad, how people perceive American power abroad, how Americans see themselves in, in, in the wider world. I was wondering if you'd say a little more about yeah. the, this idea of, of how democracy promotion relates to American power. I think if you don't look at democracy promotion through the lens of American power and as a statement and projection of American power, not, not that it's only that, but that it's substantially that, you're really not being honest with yourself. We do this because we are powerful. And we do this as a as, as kind of statement of relative power between us and another country. So – one way to think about this is why do we do historically the last 10 years – now, this is difficult now, but much more democracy promotion in Russia than in China. Is it because China is more democratic than Russia? I don't think anybody – I mean I'm no fan of, of Vladimir Putin and I think he's very far from being a Democrat. But I don't think you can plausibly say that Russia is – that China is more democratic than Russia. But China is more powerful than Russia. And we can't do – democracy promotion in countries that are of, on an equal power level with us. Democracy promotion is a way of demonstrating American power. It is a way of saying, we're strong, you're, you're not. And that is why, that's one of the reasons why democracy, our democracy promotion presence in Russia gets the Russian leadership so upset. Not because they actually think we're going to overthrow the government, because it's not going to happen, but because they see it as us showing that they're not powerful. It is ultimately... If you want to ask the question, why does the United States do democracy promotion, a very plausible answer, which is hard to prove, is it does it because we, it, we can't help ourselves. <laughs> and, the, and, and because we can't help ourselves, we only do it, we only stop it when we're stopped, right? But the flip side of that, I mean, you alluded to a moment ago about uh, judges elected, being elected uh, officially, you know. Uh, with regards to elections in the United States, you know, there are all kinds of problems with elections in the United States that I don't know, and I'm not making an argument that elections are widely stolen in the United States, but they are often conducted in ways that are not consistent with the international standards onto which we have signed. Right. And where we go looking at in other countries, I this is a true story. I live in um, uh, Congressman Charlie Rangel's district. Uh, who is actually retiring this year after being in Congress since, I believe, shortly after the Magna Carta was signed, but I'm not sure. And, <laughs> that sounds about right. Yeah, and and Charlie had a re-election fight, I believe, in 2014. He was being primary. This is a heavily Democratic district, so it's a one-party district. He had a primary fight. And, uh, and at that time, I don't know if you ever voted in New York. I assume some of your listeners have. For, for years, you could – I voted – I mean, I think I voted for Obama – on the same kind of machine that my grandfather on which my grandfather voted for Roosevelt. Right. So we had these very old machines, which would sometimes conveniently jam in, you know, in a district where the incumbent party or leader was expected to do poorly. Right. So we had our own issues there, but they introduced these new computerized voting 
things, right? And of course, I went to go vote, and I'd never done it before in New York in that with that machine with new computer thing where it scans it, and it was not much on the ballot. You know, a couple of judgeships I don't even know much about, and then a an election, a primary for a very powerful member of Congress, very influential in the community, and one or two challengers. So I voted. And I took my form and I put it in my folder, you know, the big manila folder. And I said to the person next to the scanner, okay, what do I do now? Because they were going to help me put it through the machine, you know, to make sure the vote got counted. And this person with, as far as I could see, no intention of doing anything untoward or wrong, took the paper out, face up, put it in the machine, right? Therefore, seeing how I voted. And if we, if someone does that in a village in, you know, the Svaneti region of Georgia, an election monitor is going to write that person up, right? Yeah. We have all over the country, we have partisan elected officials kind of implementing elections. The standard is to have a nonpartisan board of some kind or another, right? So I give those as examples, and they're egregious ones, and they're kind of funny ones, but we are very resistant to having, I mean, I, I have a lot of friends who work in the election business, and every now and then, I'm sure I'll get these calls in October and emails in October. I'll get these contacts from folks who are friends from other countries, and they're saying, "Hey, I'd really love to come and watch, uh, you know, observe the U.S. elections. Are there any, you know, NGOs that are doing it, and you can maybe put me in touch with them?" But we don't have domestic NGOs that observe elections, right? We have partisan organizations, lawyers for Hillary Clinton, right? Yeah. Who will? I mean, I was actually just had a meeting with my lawyer who told me that a mutual friend of him had asked them to join the New York Lawyers for Clinton. And that person's job on election day will be to go share and make go to, for example, a um, a heavily African American neighborhood and make sure that no one is harassing people and stopping them from voting. Now that's a nice principled thing to do, right? Um, but it's not nonpartisan, right? He was recruited by the he'll be, he's being recruited by I believe the lawyer for the Clinton campaign, right? I mean, it's all it's all kosher and legal, but that's how we do it here, right? And he's partisan. He wouldn't do this if he were supporting Trump, right? And similarly, the Trump people would be doing it on their side, except perhaps with a different uh, demographic agenda. Um, But we don't have domestic NGOs that just look for election fairness. We have a partisan system where the Republicans make sure the Democrats aren't stealing it. The Democrats make sure the Republicans aren't stealing it. And we hope that it ends up all right. But moving away from elections, imagine a situation where the – European Union created a seminar for newly elected members of Congress to learn how to have less partisan rancor, right? Or workshops on how to get money out of politics in the United States, clearly a major problem. We simply would not tolerate that. And the reason is because it would be, it would set a power dynamic, to get back to your original question, between us and whoever else with which we are not comfortable. And this is a difficult thing sometimes to discuss, but it, it's, it's to me, it's very, very obvious that the democracy promotion kind of world emerges out of American power and it grows with American power. It's no accident. Mike McFall, and I forget where he wrote this, refers to the post-Cold uh, War era as the modern era of democracy promotion, where it really took off and got its sea legs, if you will. Well, it's no accident, right, that early the 1990s, are in some sense the, the, the modern era of American superdominance, right? Because the Cold War yeah. ended. China hasn't had not emerged as, a, as the power that it is today. You know, September 11th had not, occur, uh, had not occurred until September 11th of 2001. So in that context of kind of hyper-American power, this, pro, this mission becomes easier and more natural to do. 
Well, yeah, it's in the era of the end of history by Fukuyama and the triumph of markets and the American, the prestige people coming here seeing the go. Maybe I shouldn't use the term, but go go nineties is kind of the economy right. coming back in, and America's prestige was very high. Clinton was well liked and for all his problems. So yeah, that, that that's a very important part of the book is that American democracy promotion, at least how it plays out in a lot of the world, is reflective of America's standing in the world and American power. Right. And, and, and the corollary to that is that as Americans begin to question that power, the support for American democracy promotion will decline. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and there's two pieces of that one is simply, you know, I mean, there, there are two sources. We have two sources of money in the United States. I mean, OK, I, I know that one of our candidates says we can just print more money if we need to. That's not really the most fiscally prudent approach to governance. Um, but really, there are two places we can tax people and we do that or we can borrow money from China. So you have to ask yourself, is it really how many hours? Do I have to as an ordinary American work so that we can contribute to an election observation in a country where we know the election is going to be stolen already? Right. So in any kind of a budget situation, you have to ask those questions. But also as the country, you know, it's not the it's not the go go teeth right now. Right. And people are feeling economic uncertainty. People are feeling that we can't attend rightly or wrongly, because I'm not the extent to which ISIS is an existential threat to the United States. I think, you know, certainly we could debate that. But feeling that we can't resolve the global conflicts in the ways that we want and, 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 and get what we need globally, the, the uh, appetite and the confidence necessary for any kind of support for democracy promotion will, will almost necessarily wane. And as the feeling about American power changes among Americans. Yeah, it's part of a larger – I don't want to go too far into this issue, but it's part of this larger argument I've read in several books recently um, about the Americans not exactly liking the – after telling people for a long time to globalize and have free markets and open themselves up to the world, now that the world is opening and competing and seeing more of America, that they don't necessarily like the, uh, the attention or the competition and are starting to close themselves off in ways that other countries had done in the past and we had criticized them for. So it's very – it's very interesting how that how that works in practice. Yeah, it, it is, and 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 we, you know, I mean the the, and this I think goes back to made the earlier point about the theory of democracy promotion. But we have, for better or for worse, you know, it, Ronald Reagan would refer to the United States as the shining city on the hill, right? Mm-hmm. Um, which is, I believe, a it's a New Testament uh, reference. But whether or not you believe that, and whether or not, when regardless of what your opinion of Ronald Reagan was. He was expressing a widely held American sentiment, right? But Reagan, unlike some of the politicians we see today, even when he was wrong, was always upbeat. And, and that's why you can say things like that. But as people's views, as we, as we you know, I mean, there was, there's an extraordinary, um, uh, you know, if you watch this last presidential election, I was very struck by every candidate, with the exception, with the obvious exception of Donald Trump, is he comes from such money, Talking about and Hillary Clinton also comes from a kind of middle class background. Many people talking about their um, backgrounds only in America can you know this happen. But of course, we know that's not true, right? <laughs> it's we, not. No. All of, first of all, we know that we have much much class much less class mobility than we used to, right? But we also know that there are people all over the world who are like the high office who used to have uh, humble backgrounds, right? I mean the the 
mayor of London is the son of a Pakistani taxi driver. So, so as we learn more about the world, particularly educated Americans are realizing the world's not that we're not that that unusual, right? Only I mean, when I was a kid, I mean, I'm not that old, but we used to, people who say this only in America can you say things critical of your government. And even then, I wondered, I wondered what the French people think of that, because <laughs> so so so, I mean, it's a complicated and this is not really the topic of the book, but it is a it is it is the topic in so much as this notion of American power and America as this unique actor in the world. When that gets questioned and when and when the people in their in their kind of have a visceral sense that maybe that's not really as simple as I was told, the democracy promotion project is much more difficult to pursue. Yeah, and, and I, I don't want to belabor the point, but it's, I just everybody read it. I put it down. It reminded me of a quote by one of the first Simpson episodes, where Lisa Simpson's in a, in a contest about the American flag, and she does, she makes the exact same point about this can only happen in America, rising to the top. But she also adds, and perhaps Canada and Australia. She just, just she, she just throws that in there in part of her speech. Just uh, one last one last point on this, and then we'll drop it. You could we, you can edit this out if you want. But in two thousand, Joel Lieberman was nominated to be vice president of the United States. It was the first Jew. Uh, I'm not sure how, you know, Barry Goldwater had one who famously, Barry Goldwater was once famously told that he couldn't play the golf course because he was Jewish. And he said, well, I'm only half Jewish. Can I play uh, nine holes? Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, Joe Lieberman, who was, you know, an observant Jew, uh, be- got an, began his speech at the Democratic Convention the year by saying only in America, implicitly only in America, could a Jew be nominated for such high office. Of course, England had a Jewish prime minister in the 19th century. <laughs> yeah, France had a Jewish head of state in the 1930s. It's not only in America, right? No. Um, you know, Ukraine today. Ukraine today has a, a Jewish prime minister. Yeah. So, so anyway, so so maybe perhaps we've belabored this now. You, you're right. You're right. But it, it does speak to a certain mindset that goes into democracy promotion. I think you. I think you drew that out well in the book. And another issue that I found interesting going through the chapters is this idea of how Americans prefer, at least as democracy promotion has played itself out, is this focus on procedural versus substantive democracy promotion. I was wondering if you could say a little more about that, those concepts. Well, procedural is things like, are the elections fair, right? Um, Is there, are there laws protecting freedom of speech? And are those laws respected? Uh, But there's not outcome oriented, right? Is, is there equality? Does everyone have an equal opportunity? Is there class mobility? Now, there's a couple reasons for that. One is that's the kind of democracy we have here, right? Our democracy is based very much on, on laws that are reasonably fair and laws that are reasonably respected, right? Rather than, well, we have, we have a problem of an enduring underclass, and that is a that is kind of axiomatically a problem of democracy. No one really talks in that language outside of kind of the radical left in the United States. So that's one piece. The other piece is it's much easier to build the former kind of democracy and support the creation of the former kind of democracy because it's much easier to uh, talk about it was the election conducted fairly than do people have a sense that they have ownership of their government, right? That's a much harder concept. Or has democracy delivered the kind of equality that perhaps breaks down the uh, the rigid structures of the previous regime, whether it was a regime where one ethnic group had all the power or people with ties to one of the parties had all the power or, you know, local uh, strongman had all the power. 
is democracy reasonable? Because you can have fair elections. And there are many countries where I've seen this, where in the uh, single mandate districts, it's just a local strongman from each county or whatever the district is being elected. And it looks like a fair election, but the process to get there was not one that speaks to a rich or deep democracy. I use the language in the book a little bit. I, I quote a, a kind of obscure Australian movie, but um, it's the vibe, right? Yeah. You know, you can, you, it's much easier to talk about process than the vibe or gestalt about of democracy. But you can't have democracy without the latter, right? You can have a procedural democracy where everyone believes elections, you know, where, where elections are conducted fairly. But until you have a democracy where people feel that they're just as good as the president and, and by virtue of having been born in that country or immigrated to that country and being a citizen, they have just as many rights as the richest person in that country. Until people really feel that, you're not going to have as meaningful a democracy. And creating that feeling is extremely difficult and something that we're just not in the business of trying to do so much because it's difficult. Yeah, it's very it's very difficult. It's it's hard. And as I read the book, the when you get into that business of trying to change economic power or change political power, you bring in by definition confrontation with the government in power. Right. What which doesn't always bode well. I mean, one of the major things that I that I found interesting in this book is the idea, and you talked about it a little bit earlier. This idea that the United States hasn't changed its tools to promote democracy, whereas trying to get a country like, I don't know, Belarus to be more democratic or Azerbaijan you use quite a bit is a lot different than getting a country like in the early 1990s, Poland or Estonia exactly. or, or Latvia. And I was wondering if you'd say a little bit more well, about that's, those, that's those kind of, the of of the paradoxes of implementation. The the approaches that worked in Latvia or Estonia or you know, Poland in the early 1990s were technical. And the reason was, was because those governments wanted to become democratic, wanted to join or maybe rejoin the West, wanted to be part of the European Union. And the leaders of that country were, were, wanted that. What the leadership of Azerbaijan wants to do, not to pick too much on Azerbaijan, but what the leadership of Azerbaijan wants to do is stay in power and continue hoarding as much of the oil wealth as possible. It's a very different mission. So these kind of technical solutions, they can easily, they can easily skirt them. They can say, yes, we will allow this, but you know, not that, or we will allow you to work with our parliament. We're not really going to have a discussion about democracy in a meaningful sense. And if you, and if you want to be here and you want a relationship with us, which you need for security reasons and not so much for oil reasons, but potentially for energy reasons, you're going to have to live with that. And, you know, it is, and that puts the United States and we have to recognize that our policymakers, you know, they're wrestling with serious questions. Do they want to fight with, with a country that may never become democratic anyway and jeopardize what is in some respects a valuable relationship? Or do they just want to say, all right, we can, we can live with this. But our technical approaches are not just technical, but they're technical to address almost a different set of problems than those that exist today. And they're not going to, and, and that's not a recipe for bringing about democracy. Yeah, it's difficult, especially when you get into even more fundamentally difficult cases like take Egypt, yeah. <laughs> for example. Uh, it's a whole different game that has to be played and, if you want to put also, it. Also, you know, we we want to be careful in this conversation, and I is that that you know the the United States is not all powerful in a yeah. the size of Egypt, right? With the the the, uh, the power, the wealth, the military, the size, population, we can only do so much. And when you look at some of these budgets, $30 million may seem like a lot, $40 million, $50 million, I don't know exact numbers in front of me, but that's nothing in a country the size of Egypt. No. You know, we, just, we just have a limited impact, limited ability to, to, 
to do anything. And that's, and that's fine. That's kind of how the world works. I'm not sure we could change that. Yeah, I've read a fair amount of books by uh, Thomas Carruthers, who's a well-known in democracy promotion circles. Uh, he makes some good points about the fact that you're not going to get a country to change its patterns of behavior if you just have 10 senators come for a three-week seminar in democracy promotion. Right. And he, in one of the books, he compares it to, like, you know, is the United States going to change its its assumptions of itself or the way it conducts foreign policy or or because 10 people went to a seminar in, in, in you know, or, France or something. Or it's because not because you had one or two good NGOs operating continually for 10 years and they're doing good work. But yeah, but the particularly in larger countries, the scope of, of what's needed is so enormous. And yeah. there's no way that the American people would support the effort really needed. I mean, the only time we really supported an effort that was that big in scale was in Germany and Japan, where I, I spent some time on this in the book. But, you know, in, in a, I think when you can take consideration time and size, we put much more money and time there than we did into, say, Iraq. And that was a historically unusual situation. Those were historically unusual situations. But, you know, so there's the, there's no likelihood that the United States is going to, or even if it, even if it committed to doing it, could have the, the change on the kind of scale or affect the kind of change on the scale that's, that's necessary. And that's, and that's a paradox of democracy because because the, the theory of democracy promotion is that the right nudge at the right place can have a big impact. So, yeah. You know, one, one of the um, internal U.S. paradoxes is, is that democracy promoters are view the, their work as both modest, right? If you look at the language, they nurture, they facilitate, they enable, they convene, right? Rather than they overthrow, they build, they destroy, right? But it's also critical. So – when the conflict happens, when the uh, you know Arab Spring begins to happen, what we hear from the democracy promotion community is, "Hey, this is our moment. We can go in and really do effective work, but we're not doing too much because we're not we're just we're just nurturing and, and enabling." And in fact, I think there's that's a to me that's a there's both sides of that argument are plausible. Like I understand that, but it's a it's a bit of a paradox there. If it's so minor, why is it so important? Or if it's so yeah. important to get there, why are you only doing so little once you get there in terms of the money and, and the, the scope of the work? No, they're very, they're very good questions, and you, you bring them up very well in the book. Uh, there's a lot of food for thought there. And another thing that you bring to the book that is also interesting in Chapter 6, you have the politics of democracy promotion, which I found an interesting chapter because of the way – it's played out on the left and right and in funding. Yes. I was wondering, I mean, you've talked about it a little bit, but could you just say a little bit more about I mean, the politics involved in, in the process of democracy? The thing promotion? that strikes me, and I, I did allude to this earlier, but the thing that strikes me and has always struck me the most about this is that because of the Bush administration, the response, to the, the criticism of democracy promotion emerges in recent years mostly from the left. And it is by linking a democracy work to, you know, the war in Iraq, Abu Ghraib, to other excesses of, of that era. But the, the notion that helping countries become more democratic is a right-wing project is one that people on the left should maybe spend some time thinking about because helping people have human rights, helping people have become more equal, have more say over their own government, having you know a, a powerful few not be able to control a less powerful larger number, those are ideas that are certainly at least as, at home on the left as on the right. Um, and then in addition in the U.S., You've also had this this kind of sometimes unspoken but sometimes spoken more conservative belief, which is that 
most countries aren't ready for democracy. This goes back to the 19th century, right, where mm-hmm. this, this notion that only some Americans, right, people who were opposed to immigration from uh, countries that were heavily Catholic, for example, um, in Eastern Europe and Southern Europe, and also other groups like Jews, for example, coming in from Eastern Europe, where the notion was they're not ready for it. We can't pollute our democratic systems with these kind of non-Teutonic, swarthy Catholics who aren't ready for democracy. You know, and as late as the mid nineteen early 1970s, it was viewed by many that Catholic countries couldn't have democracy because I don't know, the Pope or something, right? Um, yeah. And the third wave of democracy really begins in the mid-70s, and it's a largely Catholic wave, right? The Iberian Peninsula, South America, these are heavily Catholic countries. But by the time of the early 21st century, if you change the word Muslim in for Catholic, you get a similar argument. And that's a conservative argument. These people can't have democracy because of something about their culture, right? And then you get the conservative argument about the money, right? So I don't remember the year, but you know something like 100 members of the, of the Congress, or maybe 65, called for abolishing USAID's democracy work. And they were all, maybe it was USAID entirely, and they were all Republicans. Yeah, coming from the kind of the, a little bit the Rand Paul libertarian wing of the party, but also that this is the government waste wing of the party. And also, when you look at these programs, they have kind of a touchy feely liberal feel to them. You know, we're going to go over and we're going to convene a bunch of women who are running for office and we're going to help them be empowered by learning how to talk to the media better. Right. Well, you know, that's a. That's a good thing, but that sounds like the kind of thing Emily's List would be doing, not, I don't know, the NRA or somebody <laughs> like that. Um, no. And, and this is a – this is a, a really a, goes to, in my view, is a central paradox of the book, which is – and this is something I've encountered in my own life when people have said, you know, you don't seem – you know, why are you doing this? You know, you're not a fan of Bush because it was during the Bush years, and I would say no. But the people doing this work in these countries are the people that if you went to Georgia, right, if you went – to Pakistan, even. If you went to these countries, the people we're working with are the ones who you'd want to be working with. They're the ones who, you know, want to gender equality. They're the ones that want, you know, hey, let's the media should just say what it wants and we shouldn't, people shouldn't be arrested for writing things that, that, you know, the government doesn't like. Those are liberal values as much as conservative values. But it's been, but the Bush years have, have kind of perverted that. Now, we're, we're now eight years past the Bush era, almost eight, almost eight full years now. And that's changed, and it's, 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 but not fully, because Obama, you know, and there's a lot of discussion over Obama and democracy work, and the biggest differences, I argue, are rhetorical. Obama doesn't talk about the freedom agenda. Obama doesn't give lectures. President Obama doesn't give lectures about people's, you know, God-given right to be free and how we're going to make that happen. But programmatically, not as much has changed as many as many say. Well, yeah, the the issues you raised in the in these chapters made me think, especially when you have people defining democracy promotion. Because when they say democracy, we're to promote democracy. I don't think sometimes. I, I think the problem is not so much they don't think people are ready for democracy, although I think that is a problem. That they just don't like how other people define democracy. Like if you're going to have a democracy, like in you know in the with the Palestinian people or or Egypt or wherever, it doesn't even matter the country. They're probably going to favor policies that. Or vote for politicians who favor policies that are against the interests of the U.S. government. Or they might be more for economic redistribution or having more limits and things that conservatives would see government interference and not in a good way. Right. I think a lot of the problems is, is it gets back to one of the crucial points of the book is that the United States tends to promote democracy more in ways that further its interests. And well, it I, also I don't, links democracy to free markets. 
But the, yep. the, the extent to which the market should be free is a question that should be debated within democratic structures. And, and in my view, and I say this in the book, there are two ways to look at it. There are two kinds of problems. One is problems of democracy, right? A problem, a problem of democracy is the election isn't fair, right? Or yeah. uh, reporters are being arrested for writing critical articles about the government, right? We'd all say, that we, if that's happening, it's a problem of democracy, right? Then there are problems within democracy, the subjects of democracy. And on the one hand, those could be very benign things like, you know, where should we, should we build a school or a hospital, right? A budget issue. But they also get to, then there's this gray area, right? So for example, is the treatment of LGBT people a problem of democracy or within democracy? Or to put it another way, can we define a country as democratic if LGBT people aren't treated equally? Now, I have my opinion on that issue, right? My view is that LGBT people should be treated equally, that my marriage, I'm married uh, to a woman, but if I wanted to be married, but if two of my friends are, who are men are married to each other, they should be that that relationship should be treated equally in the eye of the law, in the eyes of the law. But, but the that is a question that we are still working on within our democracy, right? Or similarly, there are countries where women do not enjoy full the full rights that men do. Is that does that is that a, is that something that should be that that therefore means it's not a democracy? Or is that something that should be discussed within the democracy or the role of the state uh, of the of the religion? Right. You know, the United States has a very and we continue to debate it, but we have a very clear approach. There's no state religion. All religions should be treated equally. And in fact, the, the freedom to not have a religion or to not believe or not worship or not pray is also a real freedom. But many countries that we think of as democratic don't view it that way. And as we get into parts of the world that, for example, the Muslim world, we have to really wrestle with that. And, and, and that requires a level of thinking that is difficult, particularly if you haven't really thought through what democracy is. Yeah, I mean, it raises all sorts of questions about, you know, ethnocentrism and imperialism. If you tell countries that have, you know, laws against homosexuality, they, they need to change their laws. And some will see that. Even Russia sees that as kind of American arrogance. Right, and, and especially, especially, you know, in a country where, again, my personal views notwithstanding, where, you know, we certainly as recently as, as two weeks ago had major presidential candidate, candidates promising to restrict the freedom of, of gay people. Right? Yeah. So these are not resolved issues in our country, even if the Supreme Court says some aspects of that, of questions about, around gay people might be resolved. They're not all resolved. So and, and democracy only makes sense if there's something that's being debated and being discussed. So things like what is the role of the state in regulating the market? What is the, the, the how I mean, how much personal freedoms are we going to allow? At some point, if you if you if you define all that as that has to be answered this way for the country to become to be democratic, then what's the point of having a democracy? And all you really leave for the discussion of democracy is where should the school be built? And that's really not what people are passionate about. Yeah, and a lot, a lot of these issues come back too. And you mentioned it briefly. Uh, in my mind, raises interesting questions about what the relationship between however you want to define the term liberalism and democracy, whether nineteenth century or the more expansive twentieth century's understanding of the term, are, are questions that you know get caught up into these debates about you know how to go, what constitutes a democracy, and how democracy promotion should be should be done. So I think those are those are interesting issues that you touched upon in brief in the book. Yes. 
And I guess, I guess the question is with all these, all these issues that we've discussed today and talked about at the end of the day, you don't think that America is going to start, the United States is going to stop promoting democracy anytime soon. And uh, I guess the question is, why do you think that is so with all these, with all these problems? Well, I don't think they're going, I agree with that. They're not going to stop anytime soon. The main reason is there's a bureaucratic logic to it. It is easier to continue doing this than it is to stop. Right. There there are you know organizations, branches of the U.S. government who have people whose job it is to do this and they like doing this and they like getting that funding there. There are standalone organizations and companies. Right. There are powerful boards that, that want to see this. Um, but also, you know, there is a cost to not doing democracy. Right. If we have worked in a country for 10 years and supported good civil society organizations there and then suddenly we say, ah, you know what, it's not working. Those people will feel abandoned. So we can't do that either. Um, on the other hand, yep. if we kind of radically rethink our democracy work to make it more, say, hard hitting, you know, we, we that creates a whole lot of problems. So I, at the end of the book, I lay out a bunch of several scenarios. But to some extent, the scenario that that if I had to bet on it would be what I call the stumbling along scenario, you know, which is just that we keep doing this. We make some changes. But, you know, the bureaucratic logic, the cost of making real changes, the difficult politics of making real changes are unlikely or just make it too difficult to make it easier just to keep doing this. On the other hand, that's not going to bring democracy. That's not going to help the core mission. So if we want to get back to that, we're going to have to make real changes. Yeah, you suggest that the the United States should, on some level, try to figure out what countries are closest to moving toward democracy and devote more resources to those to those countries. And that I mean, that's very good advice. How would you like to say a little bit more about how well, you could go about trying to figure that out? What countries are moving? I, closer try, to I try not to be prescriptive. I try to I try to lay out scenarios. But even in that in that example, yeah. in that example, the, the the argument I make is that that is so subjective. Mm-hmm. It's very hard to do that. You know, we have you know, we, we look at, you know, there are various ratings and rankings, but even those are very politicized. So it's very hard. If you want to make the argument that any country is moving towards democracy, you can make that argument. So I'm not sure. I, I don't think that's a realistic approach. And that's the problem, because that would be the logical way to do it. Now, there might be a way to do it that says, look at countries, think through a little bit more what the policy is, right? Rather than just, yeah. you know, a country's not democratic. We're going to put this battery of, we're going to implement this battery of programs and hope for the best, which is kind of how we do it now. Yeah, well, yeah, I mean, you, you definitely, you write it, you write it very well that it's, it's a very difficult task to, to figure out what countries are moving toward democracy. And in, in, I think I think this is what you just said and where you come down is, I mean, a lot of this is, you know, you can look at statistics, but you're never going to be able to predict. Right. And that and that and that limits, you know, you know, what the United what the United States can can theoretically do. Right. I mean, con- so I, I, go ahead. Countries are stable until they're not right. Countries mm-hmm. are authoritarian. And, you know, as as Mel Brooks says, no one ever no one ever predicts the French Revolution. Right. Or the Spanish Inquisition. <laughs> no one ever expects the Spanish Inquisition. Yes. Sorry, I got that wrong. But it's a similar. You don't really expect. No one really expects the the the, uh, the Arab Spring. Few people really expected the collapse of the Soviet Union. Our, our methodology isn't that good yet. No, it will never be. I mean, you've got all these statistics for sports. You've got all these statistics for everything that you know. Sometimes they work, but most of the time they're dead wrong. I mean, in I mean, 2009, that's nobody where the games played on January first of 2010. If you had said, "Hey, the San Francisco Giants will win three of the next five," <laughs> people would have laughed. I mean, 
you know, other than my one friend who's been a, you know, who said that every year since 1979, people would have said you were crazy. Yeah. And at the, at the end of the day, though, you, the, the United States will keep going because it's part of this idea of American purpose that without democracy promotion, you know, what is the United States stand for in the world? And it will be, like you said, leaving people behind or perceptions of weakness and leaving and, people. And it would be a concession that we're not as powerful as we think. So for not for the cost of not much money, it kind of makes sense to keep doing it. Yes, yes, it does. And the bureaucratic logic, I think, is, is a very important point. Yes. So on, on that note, I want to thank you for speaking with me. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fascinating book that touches a lot of ground to the problems and accomplishments of American democracy promotion. And if I could, I'd put in a plug that this is a good book for upper level uh, undergraduate classes and graduate seminars in U.S. foreign policy. It touches on a lot of issues that can be related to the U.S. role in the world. As someone, as someone who teaches U.S. foreign policy, it's, it's a, it would be a very interesting book to discuss in class. Well, thank you. And before we get going, I was wondering if you could tell the listeners about your future plans, whatever they may be. Well, my future plans, I continue to work in uh, in democracy promotion, mostly doing evaluations. So I hope that this book shows people that my, my, my thinking on some of these ideas. I have a new book coming out in uh, November called Will Big League Baseball Survive? About the future of Major League Baseball. So if you're a baseball fan, uh, keep your eyes out for that one. And I am writing a lot about this current election, and, and I have a book proposal out, and hopefully I'll be writing a book about this, this fascinating 2016 presidential election. Yeah, that, the, those are both interesting projects. It's funny you mention that, because I was driving, uh, I recently took a road trip to Illinois, and all over the radio over there, there's talks about how soccer is on the verge, or maybe not the verge, but soccer is well-poised to take over baseball as a spectator sport, a spectator sport, excuse well, me, in the next 20 years. I wonder how true that is. I, yeah, I, I, have no- I, I would love to come and talk about though, that book when it comes out, but I will say this. I am, I am uh, not as bullish on soccer as, as, um, as many. Or let me say this. This is not a book predicting the end of baseball. <laughs> okay. okay. That book, and, and in the book, I go back and I try to find the earliest mention of the prediction of the end of baseball. And I got as far back as 1909, they've been saying that <laughs> kind of baseball is imminent. So imminent. So, you know, they've been wrong for a while. So anyways, thanks again for speaking with me and I wish you best of luck down the line. Thank you. My pleasure. Take care. All right. Bye-bye.